Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is a podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Charlotte Dunn for a conversation about succession after Alexander III's life. Alexander III being a previous king of Macedon and is popularly known to many as Alexander the Great. Dr. Dunn is lecturer in classics, history and classics in the School of Humanities at the University of Tasmania, based in Australia. She co-authored a monograph with a past guest on the show, Dr. Pat Wheatley of the University of Otago, and that monograph is entitled Demetrius the Besieger, which was published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Dunn joins the show today from Tasmania in Australia. Welcome to the show, Charlotte. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation today, Charlotte. And uh, as you know, and um, uh, and Dr. Pat Wheatley highly recommended you as a guest on 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 the show. Um, your um, uh, so so Pat was on the the show. Uh, I, I think it was published probably about six weeks ago or so. And we covered yes. yeah Alexander the Third of Macedon's life and. Uh, and like many episodes, when we're covering a life, we, we go through a chronology and we ended up with uh, at the at the point of uh, Alexander's death. So so the point in his, his life where he died. And I thought that it would be very um, uh, it, it would be, uh, chrono- you know, chronological to have an episode now on what well, what happened after Alexander's uh, life. And, uh, and, and as you know, Dr. Wheatley um, it speaks highly of you and recommended you uh, for the show. So, so I want to I start there then, and I want to give that background to, to, to everyone listening that uh, the show has covered Alexander III of Macedon's life. So if anyone wants to look that up, that's, that was published on June 27th, 2021. So let's, let's start more in summary because we're speaking more about after Alexander's life. Um, but can you summarize what scholars know about uh, how when and where Alexander died. Yeah, so this is really a very interesting turning point in history because, of course, uh, this is uh, a real moment where things begin to kick off. So um, Alexander dies. He's 32 years old. Um, he's in Babylon. He's really at the cusp of his um, you know, crowning achievement. He's got his empire. Um, but it's the 11th of June is when we now date Alexander's death. Um, so around 4 to 5 p.m. in the afternoon. So we actually were able to work out a rough timeline based on uh, tablets from Babylon. Uh, essentially, we're able to more or less pinpoint Alexander's death then. Um, so Alexander's just... He, he dies and he leaves no heir, uh, which was pretty significant. Um, there's not an obvious heir to this giant empire that Alexander has created, which is almost unprecedented in some ways. Uh, of course, we have the Persian Empire that Alexander has sort of taken a lot administratively from. Uh, but essentially, we are now left with a number of individuals who are in pretty prominent positions in Alexander's court. Uh, he has, as of yet, no um, child, so his child is unborn at this stage. His wife, Roxana, or Roxanne, uh, his Bactrian wife, is um, pregnant at this stage. Uh, but, of course, we don't know yet whether or not that child will um, be born male. 
so there's a lot of uncertainty at this time and it's uncertainty indeed about the actual causes of Alan Sama's death. So there's a few predominant theories there. Uh, one, of course, would just be some sort of combination of natural causes. As you can probably imagine, Alexander lived a very uh, tough life. He suffered many injuries throughout the course of his career, some of them fairly significant ones, um, including, we think, being punctured by an arrow in the lung, so our sources tell us. Uh, so, of course, this could be a combination of uh, the you know multiple physical injuries over his time. Uh, there's other theories as well. Uh, rumors of poisoning did emerge fairly quickly after Alexander died, and some attempts in modern scholarship have tried to unravel uh, what we know of these symptoms and what they might fit with. So that would be including, uh, there was a rather convincing study that suggested that white hellebore poisoning might be uh, fit really well with the symptoms that are recorded about Alexander's death. But we should keep in mind a little bit of caution there because of course, uh, anytime a very prominent figure dies unexpectedly at such a young age, of course, there's going to be uh, rumors of poisoning. And so we do think sometimes these are retrospectively kind of put onto the situation, um, especially with what happens after, which we will talk about in a moment, uh, the absolute chaos that occurs after Alexander's death. Um, you could understand why some of those individuals might be implicated in having a particular axe to grind with Alexander. Uh, more recently, there's been a really convincing theory put forth by one of my colleagues, Dr. Catherine Hall, who suggests uh, she has a background in classics, but also in medicine, and she suggests that Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, um, is a rather rare neurological disorder, but uh, it really quite convincingly matches the symptoms that we have for Alexander as well. So um, Catherine wrote an article uh, that was published just a couple of years back um, that suggests that the pattern fits really well with Alexander's demographic. Um, so that could also be an example there. And what I thought was quite striking is that we have this reference in the sources about how Alexander's body, uh, even though it lay there in the heat of Babylon uh, for a few days while people were discussing what was going to happen, um, when the embalmers came to the body, it was intact. There was no scent, uh, scent of decay, and it seemed to have been preserved despite the fact that you would expect otherwise from this, um, these conditions that the body was laying in. And um, one of the interesting things about Guillain-Barre syndrome is that your body can slow down to such a state that you would be, for all extents and purposes, seen like you were uh, dead at that point, clinically dead. But however, the heart is still beating at that stage. So there's a possibility perhaps that um, this explains what our sources tell us there. Uh, and, it, and you might have mentioned it. Uh, what, 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 what year? I heard the, the, there was a, a June date. Oh, what, yes, what? So this is 323 BCE. Um, yeah, so this is the, um, the, the moment that ends Alexander's life, and we also use this as the marker to end the classical age traditionally. Um, so after this point, we see the dawn of the Hellenistic age. So the death of Alexander, um, of course, he wouldn't have known this himself, but it heralds in a, a very remarkable, um, I guess, moment in, in Greek history there. Okay, yeah, and you might have mentioned the, the, the date. I just want to make sure it's in, 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 in yeah. there. Um, all right, so yeah, fourth century uh, BCE, um, for the most part that we're chatting about uh, the later fourth uh, century today. Um, in the conversation with uh, Pat, um, 
he he mentioned that a uh, prominent um, scholar that um, that uh, scholars contemporary contemporary modern scholars lean on um, for this for this period is uh, is a writer named Arian, I I I, I, I believe if I recall. Um, so when we're yeah. talking, when and, and Arian was writing um, three three or four hundred or so years after the uh, yeah. after that the period. Uh, and that does seem common with a lot of topics, and that's you know that that kind of uh, you know uh, you know post contemporary by a few centuries yeah. has come up on the show with different topics be- before. Um, when scholars are looking at this initial succession period, so if we're if we're if we're going past Alexander's life now, and we we chatted about covering sort of the fifteen or twenty years or so after. Alexander's yeah. uh, life. You mentioned tablets as as one as as one thing that it se- seems like is uh, involved in knowing some things about um, this this period or maybe the end of Alexander's life. But can you go over just the the the, the main like the main uh, source or sources that scholars are leaning on to n- uh, know know anything about uh, what happened after Alexander's life? Yeah, that's a really good point there because uh, after this period, I mean, this, the scholarship for Alexander has its own challenges, of course, because as you mentioned there, many of our authors, well, most of our most complete authors are writing many years after Alexander's death. So, of course, they had their own influences from their own time. They might have their own agendas. We do have Arian who uh, is generally being regarded as quite a substantial, uh, quite a good source for Alexander's life and campaign. Um, he's not without his challenges, as is usually the case with our ancient authors, but uh, he did write about the events of uh, the succession struggles and the moments after Alexander's death, um, the, the events after Alexander, but um, unfortunately we don't have the complete text. We do have uh, fragments from it, um, and it would have covered roughly around that period of 323 to about 319 BCE, which is okay, but of course things continue for quite some time. Um, We also have Diodorus, who wrote a sort of um, more general history of the Greek world. So he, of course, mentions uh, these events, but uh, they they tend to not be entirely focused on the successes and Alexander himself. Uh, And what I mean by that, of course, is he's very interested in in what's happening more broadly at this time. So we get insights into um, significant events that is happening between the generals of Alexander and um, about Alexander himself. But of course, we get digressions into other areas of history, which, you know, they are interesting, but they're possibly not what you're looking for when you're trying to unravel this time period. Um, and then there's also, of course, instances of a bit of chronological compression. So our sources might uh, gloss over something that is a really complex set of events that our sources really only address with one or two lines. So we see that in Diodorus. We see that in Plutarch as well, another prominent author. Now, Plutarch wrote a biography of Alexander, of course, which is um, all to do with uh, Alexander's life, as you would imagine, plenty of colourful anecdotes in there. He also did a few of the people who became prominent after Alexander's um, death as well. So we can take from those biographies a few details. So most notably, Plutarch wrote a biography on Demetrius, Demetrius the Besieger. Um, So he was someone who sort of rose to prominence um, during this time, but particularly after 301 BCE, which is when he becomes a king in his own right. 
We also have a biography on Eumenes, who becomes quite a key player as well, and um, Paris as well, of Epirus. So we do can, we, we rather can reconstruct a few events by looking at all of these things. Um, we also get a bit from Justin. Justin is writing a thing called an epitome of Pompeius Trogus. So essentially he is summarizing an earlier work and we get a few details from there. Um, yeah, it tends to be a little bit more hostile is my experience when, you know, if we have a certain, certain set, of a set of events, we will see that Justin maybe has the slightly more negative take on things on occasion anyway. Um, so yeah, uh, between that, uh, the other thing that's worth noting, which is something I always like to bring up to my students, um, the numismatic evidence, so that being the evidence we get from coinage, is actually very informative for this period as well. So we get the successors or the generals of Alexander, the Diadochoi, um, they begin minting their own coins after Alexander's death and they in themselves provide a wealth of information. So really it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle and we have to take everything that we can and sort of see what we can, uh, what kind of a picture emerges from it. At, when, at the point when Alexander died, what would be the geographic demarcation of the uh, Kingdom of Macedon? So at this point you can picture the, the, the empire, the kingdom of Macedonia, we of course have um, Macedonia, we have Greece, we have gone all the way down into Egypt, we have gone all the way through, I suppose, um, where modern day Turkey would be, we have um, the Near East, um, and we're going all the way across into India. Um, so pretty substantial empire, as you can imagine. Uh, it's a huge geographical area and across continents. Um, it's worth noting, of course, that uh, in some places um, they're more settled than others. So, for example, uh, Macedonia, of course, is more or less fine, it's under control. Um, but if we go to Greece, we can see the beginnings of pockets of rebellion uh, with um, especially with the death of Alexander. We have uh, Greek city-states, they are not necessarily happy to remain under Macedonian control. And this will become a bit of a reoccurring pattern over the, the course of the next few years, there'll be struggles. Um, the city-states are, especially Athens in particular, very reluctant to continue to operate under the control of the kings. But ultimately, the, the Athens that we see during the Macedonian period is not the Athens of the classical Greek period. They're not at the height of their power any longer. Um, they're weakened by their continual struggles during the Peloponnesian War. So at this stage, they really don't have the resources to um, fend off Macedonian control. Okay. And we, we can obviously weave in and out of different, different regions in the kingdom, um, but you're, you're okay to cover more what would be going on in the Mediterranean basin? In this conversation, yeah, yeah. all right, yeah. For the sake of, um, yeah. yeah, for the sake of time, and also that's more the ke the catchment <laughs> catchment area of, of, of the show, and we probably would need two or three hours if we uh, if we covered yes, <laughs> <laughs> plenty of complexity there. Yeah. All right, so uh, so what happens after he uh, he he he, di he died then? So I think I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Alexander's wife. Now he had more than one, but one of his wives, Roxanne. Uh, she was pregnant at the time, and this would be, in theory, the next heir to Alexander's empire. But of course, 
this is not going to be accepted by everyone. So we actually have this division between different factions of the army. So oh, what I should preface this by saying first is that uh, Alexander, of course, has numerous people who have been with him for a very long time throughout the course of his campaign. Some of them knew him in childhood. So we have people stationed at various points in his army that are in very prominent positions. They're well-known, they're really well-liked, and um, Alexander appears to have trusted them a great deal. Uh, one of these people was this individual called Craterus. Now, there's a bit in the sources that suggests that Craterus was actually intended to be Alexander's successor. He's notably very close to the king. He is well-liked. He's a very charismatic individual that the army responds well to. But actually, at this point in time, when Alexander dies, Craterus is actually on his way back to Europe. So he's on the way back with this individual called Polyperkin, and they're heading to Europe at the head of about um, 11,000 or so veterans. So they're taking these men back from Alexander's army. They're heading to Macedonia. Um, because of this and the unexpectedness of Alexander's death, the next in command is Perdiccas. Now, Perdiccas is uh, someone who supports the, or is the, the head of the companion cavalry. So he's sort of a head of that elite cavalry force. And uh, he really supports and champions that they want the unborn child of Alexander to be the next heir. There's a little bit of interesting maneuvering going on. This could possibly suggest that he had foreseen what was going to happen and he has maybe some royal ambitions in mind. You can imagine that anyone who is the guardian or the regent who has an infant king under command will have wield quite a considerable amount of power. Against this, we have the, the phalanx. So the infantry are, have a different idea in mind and they are supported by um, Miliago, for example, Ptolemy, who becomes the famous Ptolemy I um, of Egypt. And they support this other individual who is Aridaeus. And now Aridaeus is Alexander the Great's half-brother. He appears to have actually been older than Alexander, but in some way had some sort of mental um, or medical condition rather, or some sort of mental affliction, which made him unsuitable for being a king. Now, we don't know exactly what this was. There have been various uh, attempts to glean from the sources what we might diagnose Aridaeus with, but the point being, of course, is that it's pretty significant Alexander never saw him as a threat. Alexander kept him alive this whole time, even though he was not opposed to eliminating rivals to the throne. And so we infer from that that Aridaeus was never going to be considered suitable for the kingship, yet here we have the phalanx wanting Aridaeus. And now this is very significant in itself because uh, they have a somewhat of a nostalgia for Philip II, so Alexander's father and Aridaeus's father, they actually want to return to that more traditional, perhaps Macedonian kingship. They're very fond of the Argia dynasty, so they're supporting this. And we have a third uh, option here. Now, I mentioned that Alexander has not yet had a child, but there is actually a illegitimate son by this woman, uh, Barsine, or Barsine. She was... Um, a woman who previously was married to this individual Memnon. Now, the child originally was never considered to be legitimate. His name is Heracles. 
Um, but at this time, when we don't really have any other options, we find that Nearchus is supporting Heracles and um, later Polyprocon also supports him. So we have this bit of tension here. We have essentially a division between the infantry and the cavalry. And we have some question as to whether or not Perdiccas should really be in charge at all, but Craterus is already halfway off back to Europe, so he can't step in. And we really have the first of our many plots and intrigues that take place here. So a bit of a compromise is reached, um, not without some violence, but um, we have Perdiccas essentially making everyone else think that Miliago is plotting against him. But eventually they do come to, uh, and Miliago loses his life in, in the fray, but they do come to a compromise that there is going to be a joint kingship. So Perdiccas retains his rank and they agree to appoint Aridaeus, Alexander's half-brother, to the position of kingship. He takes on the dynastic name of Philip III Aridaeus in memory of Philip II, of course, his father. And a few months after this, we have the birth of Roxana's child, Alexander IV. So now Perdiccas is in control of an infant king and another king who cannot rule independently. And Craterus is essentially appointed um, to this stage of, um, or this particular title, um, Prostates. So maybe like a regency or a guardian, something like that. Um, but again, whether or not you are able to wield much influence here, Perdiccas really seems to have things uh, falling into place for him. I, I, I can almost envision um, a table with a whole bunch of playing, like, like playing cards yes. on, on, a, on a table with all these, uh, with all these uh, different factions at, at, at play. And, and probably um, someone new, new to the topic, it, it would help too if, they were, if they're all labeled <laughs> the cards with, yes, <laughs> with yes. all the names. Um, it's very complicated, <laughs> especially as you can read glean from this um a lot of people have the same name as well which adds to the confusion <laughs> i've i've, I've bumped I, chaotic time. yeah i i can't yeah I, bump, I bumped into that on the on the show in a different episode once where two two different people that are both um somewhat material to the conversation had this had the same name and that made <laughs> that 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 made for a confusing moment because i uh, i was asking uh i was asking uh you know the, a question thinking they're the same uh same person <laughs> Um, yeah. but it's, um, it's worth noting as well that this sort of period is sometimes referred to oh this this particular moment um, we sort of call it the settlement of Babylon so you can imagine all these uh, battle hardened generals are there deciding what what is going to happen what is going to be the fate of this giant unwieldy empire that Alexander has created and um, so yeah we, we have uh, actual fighting breakout um, there's there's further intrigues as well I mentioned that Alexander had more than one wife um, so we have um, Statira who is his other wife there um, the daughter of the the previous Persian king um, and she she was murdered uh, usually we think um, on with the complicity of Perdiccas. So uh, why might he do this? Well, there's some inference there that she could have been used as another sort of legitimizing political tool. She's from a prominent family and former wife of Alexander's, uh, former wife of Alexander. So another rival is eliminated straight away and um, sort of disappears off the scene very quickly. Um, and, and we see that happen multiple times. Um, There's a very brutal time period. Uh, not a lot of space for um, other rivals to, or anyone who might threaten the position of Alexander the Fourth here. 
I think though, in under ten minutes, in uh, in your previous response, I think you did an excellent job uh, laying, laying it out for 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 anyone listening and my myself in, included. Um, so was there? It sounded like it, there was clearly conflict, but it also sound sound sounded like there was some efforts at diplomacy. So can, was were were they at all? Initially, was the approach at all to um, keep the entire empire intact? I think you mentioned there might have been co-rulers. There was some conversation about that. Or did it get right into dividing up the empire after Alexander's death? So they had to proceed with extreme caution is essentially, I think, the best way to approach this. Now, in in older scholarship, certainly, you will find uh, quite firm arguments for those who would be considered uh, wanting to keep the empire together so they had a sort of unification uh, model that they were working towards, and those that were more separatist and they had their own individual ambitions. But I think my assessment of the successes in their plans is that they were incredibly opportunistic. And so they were kind of at the mercy in some ways as well of getting support from their armies. They needed uh, to have a cause that their armies would follow and believe in and be supported by. So they can only do so much. And it's really important, especially in these early years, to maintain the idea that they are directly acting on Alexander's orders or within accordance with Alexander's wishes, essentially what Alexander would have wanted. So we see a lot of... um, you know, references to Alexander appearing in a dream before battle and supporting one side over the other, or they, you know, they take counsel in front of Alexander's diadem and um, I think his signet ring and the sort of the arms of Alexander. And so they all meet ahead of this as though Alexander is still watching and, and contributing to the what's going on here. And um, we see that they maintain this idea that they are keeping the empire on behalf of the king, so on behalf of Philip and behalf of Alexander, the legitimate heirs to the empire, even if we see their behavior, it does not necessarily reflect this this propaganda or this particular policy that they're operating to. Uh, We do see that the arguments themselves are very important during this time. So it's very symbolic to have control over the kings, of course, and, even Alexander's body. So there's something quite significant that happens. Uh, it's sort of a legitimizing act to bury the body of your your predecessor. So it sort of helps to cement your position of power. And so Perdiccas, of course, being in charge, he has um, they they take quite a considerable time to to create Alexander's uh, funeral preparations. They are building very elaborate sort of structures, his funeral carriage, and um, they embalm the body and entombment, and it's all very elaborate. So Perdiccas has this, and he also uh, has a somewhat of an alliance building with Cleopatra. Now, Cleopatra is Alexander's full sister. She is the daughter of Philip II and Olympias as well. And so there's an overture made to marry Perdiccas, which he accepts. And so you can imagine he's coming back, he's heading back to Macedonia at the head of this funeral procession with the body of the king. He has the two kings under control. He's about to marry the into the family, the royal family. So this is pretty significant. So Perdiccas himself might have had uh, royal aspirations. He might have had uh, his own intentions for the empire, but uh, certainly he was sort of playing it by the book. He was not um, trying to 
overstepped boundaries. He wouldn't have crowned himself king at this stage. Now, this does happen later with the successes, but we're not quite there yet. Everything seems to happen stage by stage. So he's about to have this sort of triumphal return, but one of his rivals, uh, Ptolemy, um, inter intercepts here. So Ptolemy famously uh, makes sure that the body, instead of going back to Macedonia to be interred there, uh, he steals it, essentially. He steals the funeral procession, diverts it to Egypt. He convinces the people in charge that Alexander wanted to be buried in Egypt, close to with his uh, 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 purported divine father, Zeusimun. So the body is snatched by Ptolemy and taken to Egypt. And so again, a symbolic blow, and it one actually sets off uh, a further conflict. So we have a uh, conflict between Ptolemy and Perdiccas at this point. Uh, this is about 321 BCE, uh, around about here. Um, and well, this, this essentially uh, forces uh, Perdiccas to make war on Ptolemy. And uh, unfortunately, he was not successful in his invasion of Egypt. He's actually defeated. And uh, it's quite visceral, the description. We have this in Diodorus. Uh, he, he fails at crossing the river. He's forced to cross back. He loses thousands of people into the Nile. And um, there's even this visceral description of them being lost to the animals. So we infer from that maybe crocodiles. Uh, Pat has uh, suggested as well, perhaps hippopotami, which are known to be very vicious as well. So of course, at the end of this disaster, uh, Perdiccas, he, he has everything so carefully planned and um, he, he can't, I guess, stick it. He can't stick the landing. So what happens is his generals mutiny, essentially, and he's, he's killed in the night. And so, so ends Perdiccas. He sort of exits the scene at that point. He was really poised there to take over for a moment, but um, such is the way of the, these, the way these years go. Um, the, the military disaster was absolutely the end of Perdiccas' career and life, as it turns out. Um, it's kind of interesting with Perdiccas, it's worth noting that our sources, so our ancient texts that we mentioned, they tend to paint a bit of a negative view of Perdiccas. He seems to be the sort of one who's not following orders. Um, he, he's sort of presented rather ne negatively. We think it's partly because of his rivalry with Ptolemy. Ptolemy was a source for Alexander history, although we don't have his original work. And because of that, we end up with um, a bit of... Uh, retrospective damning of Perdiccas's character um, every so often. So if you ever come across something where Perdiccas is treated rather negatively, that could be the reason why there. Um, but yeah, so essentially we have um, some of those who, like Ptolemy, for example, would be an example, uh, a person who got to Egypt. He was uh, in Egypt and he, although he does make various attempts at, um, he's obviously involved in these conflicts, he's not not interested in expanding his territories, but I think he realized very early on that a uh, well-controlled, contained uh, part of the world that you could govern and conceivably hold on to was probably the better strategy. So I think he really focuses on his dynasty building. He focuses on uh, Egypt itself. And um, although yeah, he can't help but be embroiled in conflict and struggles, I think he realizes early on that uh, universal empire, the way that Alexander seems to have had it, is not really achievable. Um, others, others try, others are more ambitious. So Demetrius would be someone who seems to be aiming at re recreating this um, at various points in his career. And speaking about historical figures with um, multiple figures with the same, same name, 
Um, you'd mentioned Cleopatra, and I want to ensure yes. no one listening uh, conflates it with uh, Cleopatra yes. the seventh from the first century um, B- yes, B- yes. BCE. Um, no, no, it's it's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Um, multiple Cleopatras uh, end up um, existing at one one point. So can you can you clarify? Would this be the first uh, Cleopatra in that dynastic line, or or is there a number that that scholars typically yeah. associate to her? It's interesting you should say that because, of course, Ptolemy, um, at least if, if, according to some of our sources, does claim some descendancy from the Argian dynasty. So there, there are later stories that uh, Philip, uh, Philip II, of course, uh, is also a father of Ptolemy. Now, we think this is, again, all to do with this legitimacy and this power grabbing that's happening at this time. Any Argian connection at this point is seen as valuable. So we have these stories to do with um, Philip maybe being the father of Ptolemy, uh, probably not the case, but certainly was useful at the time. Uh, so anyway, there, there could well have been um, some looking to the Argia dynasty for these names. So uh, although probably not related to the Argia dynasty, there is a possibility that these dynastic names, so we have um, Cleopatra's come up in the Seleucid dynasty, which is of course founded by Seleucus, uh, who is, uh, well, Seleucus I, we would say. Um, but yeah, the, the, this Cleopatra, daughter of Philip and Olympias, is not, uh, as far as we would know, um, related to that bloodline, I guess at least very indirectly. Um, so yes, we, we kind of have a, a, a restart and there'll be a first Cleopatra within the Ptolemaic dynasty and this one is not necessarily related to them. Uh, but yeah, very popular dynastic name. And um, there is a bit of uh, looking to the Agnia dynasty. So Cassander, who becomes eventually the king of Macedonia after um, a few more years of these sort of civil wars and, and struggle, he ends up naming his children Antipater after his own father, but also Philip and Alexander. So these, of course, are fairly common names in the Greek world, in the Macedonian world, but uh, certainly some maybe looking towards that, that memory and, and hoping that this will add something to their what they're building here. They're trying to create a sense that they are indeed legitimate kings following along the style of Alexander, even though, of course, they have illegitimately stolen power or received power for themselves, royal power that is. Okay, so um, something we chatted about was we wanted to end up this this conversation. We wanted to end the conversation in uh, in the chronology around the the division of the um, how it ends up being being divided, and that's probably a very natural given the um, the, the the titles around the the succession after Alexander's life. Um, do you want to cover? Then on that note, do you want to cover um, how the Greek region, uh, kind of in a uh, clockwise for for uh, 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 for the for the sake of simplicity, so the Greek for the Greek region, um, what occurred there for succession, uh, what occurred uh, for any territories in Asia Minor, and then what occurred in Egypt? Do you think that's a reasonable way to approach this? And then we'll wrap up the yeah. wrap up the chat. Yeah, okay. definitely. Um, so. We're fast forwarding ahead a little bit, but uh, essentially we end up with uh, Antipater, who is uh, was originally Alexander's regent. He is controlling Macedonia. 
when he dies, he instead of electing his son, um, he actually elects someone else. So this is a little bit of an unusual thing. We're not quite sure why he does that, but in 319, he appoints Polly Perkin to be the regent and um, he um, this causes a bit of a conflict. Cassander ends up allying to Ptolemy. Um, but eventually by 317 BCE, Cassander has regained control. He has been recognized as the ruler of Macedonia and um, he's the regent then uh, of, of the controller of Philip III by this stage. Um, so essentially Macedonia is controlled by um, Cassander. In Thrace, we have King Lysimachus. Um, so again, they're, they're not quite kings at this point. This kind of happens after 306 BCE. They assume royal titles. Our sources tell us they've been pretty much acting as kings in everything but name by this point, but officially that happens in 306. So we have, uh, by that stage, Lysimachus is in Thrace. Uh, we have the Antigonids, uh, well, we have the Antigonids essentially in occupying a, a great deal of, um, I, I guess, what we might call the, the Near East, the Middle East, they've got Turkey. Um, they have a pretty substantial portion of what was formerly Alexander's empire. Ptolemy has been recognised, or Egypt's um, sort of separate rule under Ptolemy and his leadership has been recognised by this point, so um, this would be in the sort of, it, it, he'd been controlling it for quite some time, but um, essentially they, they decide that Ptolemy can have Egypt, that is fine. Um, this would be after about 311, the peace of 311, they're kind of, um, this is when Ptolemy and Lysimachus are confirmed in their territories. Um, Seleucus and Antigonus, and of course Antigonus is working with his son Demetrius, they are kind of at odds with one another. Um, Antigonus ends up going back to Syria, they, they have a few conflicts and, and Seleucus goes on to focus on sort of eastern uh, satrapies. And it's worth noting at this point as well that um, Alexander of course had gotten as far as India, uh, but uh, this was more or less left alone by the other successors. So we have um, Chandragupta, um, he essentially um, has taken back India at this point. He's got to the Indus Valley. Um, so he eventually has a sort of um, truce arranged with Seleucus and Seleucus gets a quite a, a significant battalion of war elephants from this, um, but they decide really no one again approaches India or attempts to um, really go as far as what Alexander had. It's probably not from lack of ambition, but because of the nature of the fighting, they were constantly in conflicts, various coalitions uh, form and fall apart again as soon as they've sort of achieved or half achieved their aims. And so it's not necessarily that anyone wouldn't have aimed for further control, further territorial expansion. They certainly thought that Antigonus was aiming for that but they certainly didn't have the capacity to do so. They were too embroiled in their own struggles. Now, when it comes to the Greek city-states, these were all controlled or allied to various of the successors. Um, they were more greatly controlled by Cassander at one point, and so Antigonus is able to make a bit of a play for, uh, excuse me, <coughs> The, the freedom of the Greeks, Greeks. So he really champions that idea again that um, the Greek states or city states should be free and autonomous. So he is able to do that. So they were able to get Cassander out of um, Athens and defeat the people that he put in there to control the city. 
that said, Athens doesn't stay under control for very long. So we have a series of Athens accepting kingship under various kings' rule, notably the Antigonids, and then rejecting them again at various points and then giving in once more when they're forced to. So there's always a little bit of instability in those sort of major Greek city-states. Some, like Corinth, uh, seem to be fairly happy with their the way their relationship is with the successors, but others um, seem to fight off. Sparta seems to have more or less been able to stay out of um, much of the conflict. Um, Demetrius was almost on the cusp of conquering it, but he gets distracted by other aims there. Uh, but essentially, these are the five main um, divisions. We have um, Ptolemy, Cassander, Lysimachus, Antigonus with Demetrius and Seleucus there. And so it sounds like uh, the, the Greek region went um, back and forth multiple times with different um, city-states, pol polities. Um, yeah. And it sounds like Sparta, you said, uh, it, it stayed, stayed out of it, out of the conflict for the most, most part. And, um, and, and clarifying your response, um, they were never part of the kingdom of Macedon, it, it sounds like. No. Okay. And, uh, and it sounds like Egypt, uh, as, a, as a region in that area, uh, came under, became one state, it sounds like. Mm. And then it sounds like in the Asia Minor, working into the, the Levant, and please cl clarify as, as necessary in your response, yeah. um, and, and then to the, much to the east of that, uh, became a state as well, if, we, if, we, if we're talking more about that, uh, e that eastern Mediterranean basin area. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, of course, with the caveat that these do change um, over time. So sort of in about 303 BCE, I guess we would see um, that's that's more or less um, when you, you would might think of it as kind of stable. So we have Seleucus really in that um, that area kind of all the way up to the borders of the Indian Kingdom. We have, um, we would have antagonists in that area that's all along the coast so where all those um ionic greek cities are um that's sort of under the control of the antagonists at that stage um we have various uh changes and so after 301 of course for all extents and purposes uh, sorry demetrius loses his father's kingdom so there were the kingdoms they were ruling together so at 301 uh, things change again, but in, in the book we discuss um, what what this really looked like. So our sources tell us that uh, uh, Demetrius loses everything, but we've kind of refined that view somewhat because uh, despite the fact that this is one of the points where Athens puts Demetrius out, they essentially bar him from entering the city, so he loses Athens, of course, but despite that, um, he it's more probably stable than what our sources want to give us the impression of. So they really present this like the biggest disaster of, of Demetrius's life. He's lost his father. He's been defeated on the battlefield. He loses the kingdom. But we think some places uh, are more maybe stable than that. Um, we think that is a bit of an exaggeration of our sources. They sort of say everywhere his garrisons were being expelled. Well, we maybe can refine that view a little bit. Um, but certainly, yeah, by in sort of 300, um, we have Cassander in control of most of those major Greek city-states. Um, we have um, to the north there, again, Lysimachus in control of Thrace. Um, he takes a lot of the Antigone kingdom, so he spills out over into um, 
what yeah turkey essentially so he's got um ephesus for example major area um yeah um and seleucus again gets uh, a portion of this as well you did a terrific job in this conversation, Charlotte. Uh, these th- this this particular format with the show keeping episodes uh, under an, an hour um, really takes uh, a certain approach to the to the conversations. And this this particular topic, even though it's just twenty years or so, fifteen or 20, 20 years, um, as you know, is 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 there's a lot there's a lot here. And I think you did. Yeah. Uh, you did. A, you did a great job today. Um, really, oh, really. Oh, it's so fascinating. I mean, <laughs> if anyone is even just a little bit intrigued by what's happening, we've called this before the sort of the real Game of Thrones. I mean, you, you've just got everything here. You've got poisoning plots. You've got all sorts of interesting uh, warfare developments. You've got kings plotting against one another. Uh, it really is um, just as there's so much to delve into with this. And um, I find, yeah, personally, the politics and the the, the attempting to maintain legitimacy while being quite sneaky and uh, power hungry is, is a very fascinating topic to me. You're now the third scholar on the show that has, of course, it, as, as a joke, has called this uh, some version of the Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> this, this we might need a new, new type of phrasing. <laughs> Um, That'll be the, the Pat influence. We're probably all, all influenced by that. <laughs> Pat, Pat will be uh, applauding, I'm sure, your, your performance on the show today, Charlotte. You did a great job. It was wonderful chatting with you. Yeah, it's great to, yeah, great to chat with you. I'm very, very happy to talk about the successes and all the shenanigans. Well, let's, uh, I, I'd, I'd love to do it again sometime, Charlotte. So again, <laughs> Excellent. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Dunn co-authored, Demetrius the Besieger, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Charlotte and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you, everyone. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.